0: If you would just turn to Luke 8, we'll hear from the Lord through his word. Luke 8, we're going to read the first 21st verses. Title of the message, Will What You Have Be Taken? Look in Luke 8, beginning in verse 1. And it says, Now it came to pass afterward that he, Jesus, went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold, which is an unbelievable crop over the Middle East. Tenfold would have been a good crop. A hundredfold is incredible. And it says, when he had said these things, he cried. He cried. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables. And here's why. That seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In other words, the parables were a form of judgment. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear And then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, but in time of temptation fall away. Now, the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, they go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. And then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So it's interesting, at the beginning of this, we read the first few verses, the first three verses, didn't skip over those. Typically, you do when you're talking on the parable of the sower. I'm not just talking about that, though, today. But it's interesting, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, so he never stayed long in one place, even though a lot of times they would have liked to have. Thumped. So. He went around, he preached in the big cities, but he also preached in the towns and the little villages. And what he was doing is, he was doing what the parable says. He's spreading that word. He's broadcasting that word everywhere, just like the sower in the parable that we just read. But what was this message that he spread? What was his message? And it says right there, if you'll look in that first verse, it says that he spread the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and that is the message of the new testament that is the word and that is should be our message it should be our message should be glad tidings and what are the glad tidings that the kingdom of god not just about it right but that it is come and when he said he started his ministry off in the beginning to mark repent for the kingdom of god is at hand in other words it's here and that was the message the kingdom of god has come in power the power of the holy spirit now Just a few chapters beyond this in chapter 11 of Luke, it says they accuse Jesus. They say this power you're demonstrating is really just the power of the devil. And his answer to that was, you know, if I cast out demons, not with the devil, but with the finger of God. And it says in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 12, he says, I'm doing it by the spirit of God, the finger of God, the spirit of God. He tells them, he says, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. It arrived there and then with him, and it's never left this earth. Now, if you and I aren't experiencing that power, I'm just going to say it's not that it's not available and that God somehow has changed his mind and is no longer the living God among his people. And I want to talk about that for a minute. God is the living God. I mean, that is all throughout Old and New Testament that he is called that. The living God means that he's alive and his presence should be in our midst individually and corporately listen to how this is four times listen to how the apostle paul describes the god he serves so in acts 14 he's at lystra and in lystra there was a man there that was impotent in his legs couldn't walk and paul in barnabas date paul says rise up and walk and a miracle takes place and the people are beside themselves to see this power demonstrated this supernatural power this wasn't therapy. This wasn't he went to therapy and could walk. This was the supernatural power of God entered his body. The man was normal. And they're like, the gods have come down. They're going to sacrifice to him. And Paul has to stop him. In Acts fourteen fifteen, he says, men, why are you doing these things? He says, we also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you. Here's what he preached, that you should turn from these useless things, these idols, all these idols that they worship, they look to to help them out and for power. He says, turn from them and turn to, he says, the living God who made heaven, the earth and the sea and all things that are in them. I mean, you've got to be driving sometimes or walking or doing whatever and look up at the sky, the earth, everything that's here and think the living God made these things. He's not abandoned us or the earth. That's what the Bible says. First Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he's writing, you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, he says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He's saying that's what Christianity is. We're not serving a God that we just hope will come and help us the living and the true God. He can be trusted. And he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. 1 Timothy 4.10, he says this, For to this end we toil and strive, because, this is Paul saying this, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Of those who believe, 1 Timothy 6, a couple chapters after that, he says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So listen, faith is involved in all of this, isn't it? I mean, isn't that kind of the message we've heard for all these years? It doesn't happen without faith, okay? But here's the question is, do you serve a living God? And that's the question, whether you can expect deliverance or not. In Daniel 6, Daniel wouldn't bow his knee and all that. So the king, Darius, gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke and here's what he said to Daniel. He says, your God, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, that is a heathen king saying that to Daniel. Your God, whom you serve continually. And the next day, he didn't sleep real good that night, but the next day, the same king comes to the mouth of the den of lions, and he calls out this. He says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And what was Daniel's answer Well, I'm missing half a leg, but other than that, I'm doing all right. I I got in a corner and hid myself. Is that what he said? Daniel said, this O king live forever. He says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because here's why I was found innocent before him. Daniel had a righteous life and he trusted him and he communed with him three times a day. It didn't matter whether his church fell apart or not because it did. He had no temple to worship. He's drawn into a, a pagan land in a pagan culture. He didn't quit serving God, did he? No. Tornado could have come through and he still would have been serving God. And so as a result of all of that, King Darius, we're still talking about the living God. The King Darius issued this decree. He says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. A heathen king says that about Daniel's God, the God we serve, the God we serve. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Getting back to Luke, I haven't really got away from Luke. Because Luke mentions here that Jesus went preaching everywhere. And what was his message? It was the same message the apostles had, same message he always had. The glad tidings, the gospel, the glad tidings of the kingdom. I mean, if this whole thing of God supernaturally delivering us, healing, if that's not glad tidings, then we may as well just shut everything down. I'm serious. What's the point? If there is not a living God to be served, what is the point of being Christians and believing in the Bible? Because it's filled with it. I'm not just being whatever. I'm saying that's the way it is. Beginning of chapter 8, Luke mentions how this glad tidings was experienced. Look what it says here in verse 2. He preached that. Certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, he names them Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, Herod, Stewart, and Susanna and i liked what matthew henry now matthew henry was not a charismatic spirit-filled commentator but he wrote this about these women and what they experienced about the glad tidings of the kingdom of god and through jesus christ he said this he says they were such for the most part has been christ patience patience in the sense a doctor has patience not he they tried his patience but p-a-t-i-e-n-t-s and he says this about him he said they were monuments Of his power and mercy. They had been healed by him of evil spirits and infirmities. Some of them had been troubled in mind, had been melancholy, others of them afflicted in body, and he had been to them a powerful healer. Okay, it's like I was talking to somebody in this church. If you went out and took your bible and you didn't have all this other stuff coming at you all these people telling you what you could and couldn't believe if you're going to tell me that you could go out there with just you and your bible on an island never read one before never heard of christianity and you're going to come away from that other than jesus supernaturally is a healer that's what the lord is you wouldn't get anything but that or that the bible that god expects us to trust him wholly. you wouldn't get anything but that either and a lot of other things, like they said, you, you, where would you come up with Christmas trees and ornaments and Yuletide logs and all of that? You, if you just had your Bible, and that was part of your you wouldn't get any of that. Or Halloween, of all things. He <laughs> get just the opposite of that, right? You're going to get stoned, you start going seeing the seances and seeking occult people. But he said he was them a powerful healer. Matthew Henry said this: He is the physician both of body and soul, and those who have been healed by him ought to study. What they shall render to him. I would contend that the message hasn't changed. It's still the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. That is the true message of the church of Jesus Christ. Why would that change? I don't see it shouldn't change. God hasn't changed. His kingdom hasn't changed. It's an everlasting kingdom. Darius said that. Jesus hasn't changed, has he? Don't we still believe Hebrews that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever? And I would still contend it's glad tidings we can experience today. But what it comes down to is that's what the whole rest of the message is about. How we receive the glad tidings of the kingdom. Because we hear the parable of the word. The seed is the word. Do you know what the word is? The word it's talking about is the message of the kingdom of God. Look in Luke eight eleven, And look what it says. It says, now the parable is this. It says there the seed is the word of God, and everyone says, "Amen." But in Matthew's account of this same parable, it begins this way: If you would put something there in Luke eight and turn back to Matthew thirteen, which is the more common version of the parable of the sower that people preach from, but well, look what it says in. Matthew 13 I'm uh, just trying to make the point that the message of the word is the message of the kingdom which is the message of the power of God so when you look in Matthew 13 18 it says Jesus explaining the parable like what we read over in Luke 8:11. it says therefore hear the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word now what does he say he doesn't say the word of God he says the word of what the word of the kingdom in other words the word concerning the kingdom of God that's what's being preached The word that's being sowed in the parable of the sower is the full gospel. That's the word he's talking about there. What we have to be careful how we hear and what we do with it. It's the full gospel, the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Today's church, for the most part, they will limit that to forgiveness and eternal life, which I would say, amen, that's what it's about. But it's also about healing, deliverance, and a supernatural walk with God in all aspects. You see what I'm trying to say here? That's what this word it's talking about in this parable. That four different people, four different hearers hear it in different ways. And they do different things with it. That's the point. How we receive the word, whether we've heard it in the past, hearing it today, or hearing it in the future, whether you stay or you leave this place, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change your responsibility for God. Leaving this church, going to another church, you still heard a word. You're still responsible. Jesus said, I'm not going to judge you. This word will judge you. If somebody can hold on to the word that they've received and go somewhere else and God really, truly busting, I got no issue with that. I'm talking to us here, right? Yeah. I'm not talking to somebody anybody else. How we hear that word is going to be whether we bear fruit. Are we going to be in the category of the first three hearers where there is no fruit comes out and thus no life That's where it ends up. Back to Luke 8. It says here in verse 4 that a great multitude came from everywhere. And it says he spoke to them in parables. That's what it says, verse 4. A great multitude gathered. A great crowd. And I think in one of the accounts, I believe it's Matthew or Mark, he's in a boat. I mean, man, you can really preach from a boat. If you got water behind you, when we were in Florida, the place we were staying, and you could hear people because the water's behind, voice just echoes up. It's like we're however many stories up and it's like you're standing right next to the person their voice will carry a long ways and so he gets in a boat and he's talking to this huge crowd and when he speaks to them he speaks to them it says in parables and he did nearly one-third of all of his teaching came in parables now what is a parable i'm not going to spend a lot of time on this but our english word parable is actually what's a transliteration in other words it's just basically the greek word is parabole so parable parable it sounds exactly the same Para in Greek means to come alongside or to be alongside. We get our English word parallel, something that's alongside. Para and bole means to throw or to toss. And that's where we get our word bully. You throw or toss the ball down the lane. The Greek word parable, parabole, means literally to toss alongside. So a parable is something tossed alongside something else. In the case of Jesus' teaching, he's taking something supernatural, a supernatural truth, and laying it alongside a natural picture or story. That's what he's doing. Or another popular definition that's common is that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So people and... You know, he's talking to common people. If Jesus started talking all this high esoteric speech, he'd lose all the crowds. That's not the point, is it? God wants to reach us. He designed this earth in a way he can reach us through the earth, right? Marriage is designed to show the relationship of Christ and the church and on and on. And people like to hear stories. That's just the way it is. And good storytellers have captive audiences. Now, the main aim in the parables in the Bible, because they have some in the Old Testament, too, as we'll see, The immediate aim is they want to catch somebody's attention, make them compelling and interesting. And the reason a lot of times is they want to disarm the listener. You're listening along. It's like, yeah, this is interesting. You could kind of get caught up in the story itself. And we have a good example of that when Nathan approaches David about Bathsheba. And he doesn't just approach him with David and Bathsheba and get in his face, does he? How does he approach him? He says, tells him a story about a rich man who takes... The only lamb of a poor man. This rich man has all kinds of lamb, but he's got to take this one poor man's little lamb to feed a friend. And David's unsuspecting, listening to this. Nathan's his buddy, and he gets drawn into the story, and then he's listening, he gives his verdict death needs to come to him. He shouldn't live like that. That's what happens. He's unaware of the point. But listen, what is the ultimate aim of either Jesus' parables or even that parable that Nathan told David? He's trying to give insight, he's trying to awaken the conscience, and move the hearer to action. And that really clearly happened to David, didn't it? His eyes were opened. He saw the enormity of his crime. And his conscience is convicted. He's convicted to the core, fully awakened. And then it causes him to move to action, didn't it? I mean, what's the first thing he did? I repent. He saw his sin. He repented. And that's what he's after the whole time, isn't it, Nathan? Nathan? Doing it in a way to bring David to that point and does it through a parable. And that's what our Lord did. Told many parables. That's his point with all of them. Jesus uses the same technique when he tells the story of the steward in Matthew 18. You remember that story, the steward that owed the king a tremendous amount of money. And the king's like, oh, it's gonna be you, your wife, your kids, you're all gonna be in jail. And he begged him for forgiveness. And the king, out of his mercy, he didn't have to, just as he could have thrown the guy in jail. But out of his mercy, he just freely forgave the debt. And then the steward turned around and found, it says, a fellow steward who owned him a mere $10 and choked him and pay me back what you owe. And you're listening, reading that story, if you've never heard it again. And everyone reading that or listening to it, you would be on the side of the king, wouldn't you? Because the king says, you're a wicked servant. You deserve no mercy. I'm taking it all away from you. And everyone's listening, thinking, that's right, hang him. And then Jesus adds the zinger at the very end. He's good at doing this, just like Nathan did to David. He says, Jesus says at the end of that parable, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And everyone reading that goes, "Mm -hmm," because we're all like David. We all realize he's really talking to me. Because anytime you read that, if that didn't give you an attitude check, there's something wrong with you. I need to heed that, or nothing else. I need to heed that warning and make sure I'm not doing that because I don't want to be the one to never be forgiven. Getting back to this parable, this parable of the sower, it's just got one simple point, and that is this a person's response to the Word of God, how you respond, is dependent on the condition of a person's heart, and fruit is the only evidence. That's the evidence he gives. So in this parable, the sower is not described at all. He's just a generic farmer, and he's not the point of the story. He's just part of the story, right? The seed is called the word. Like we said in Matthew, it's called the word of the kingdom. Here it's called in in Luke, the word of God. But the same seed or word is spread across all four types of soil, isn't it? Uh, Let me say this, though. I'm not saying that the sower or the seed are unimportant. I'm just saying I don't think they're the main point because this seed that is gone forth and sown has power. And its design and purpose is to produce fruit. That's its design and purpose. It just doesn't always happen because its power, this power that is there in this seed, is released when only one ingredient is in the soil. And what is that? Faith and obedience. So It's designed to have power when he's sowing forth, but it only happens when it's met with faith and obedience. That has to be in the soil of the heart. Hebrews 4.2 says, For indeed the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings, was preached to us as well as to them. It says, But the word which they heard did not profit them. The power was there. It could have. But it says, Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. But in that same chapter, that is Hebrews 4, he goes on just a few verses later saying this is how powerful that word is. For the word of God is living, like the living God is living and powerful. So that power is right there in the seed. It's there. It's in the word. It's in this word that we read. Not the words on the page, but in the word from the living God. If you exercise faith in it, the same sower is sown to all the soils. The same seed is broadcast." the one variable and the only variable is the soil and its condition the heart and how it hears now jesus gives two warnings two warnings about how we hear the word of god in mark 4:24 after he's given the parable of the sower and the seed he says there take heed what you hear now here in luke 18 he says take heed how you hear Now, those are not the same warning. They are two different warnings. First, what you hear. Take heed what you hear. And we're good at this one because that is we need to be careful of error. We should be. I don't know anymore, but we should be. We've been taught to do this. Check out the truthfulness of a message because who wants to sit under error? And That's what we supposedly got out of to come here, right? To hear the true word of God that's the first warning isn't it the second warning though take heed how you hear that one we have to ask ourselves are our hearts really set to do the will of god when we hear it because like i said we're really good at the first one and i'll tell you why because the discern error doesn't take any change You can sit back in your armchair and say, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I'm saying that doesn't really require any change in your life, does it? That doesn't require crucifixion of the flesh. But the second one, oh, that's the thing there, and maybe that's our problem. We're good at hearing, we're good at listening, we're good at discerning, but how good are we at changing? Jesus, in this parable that we're reading here, and we need to understand he is not talking to those that have never heard. He's not talking to those that quit hearing, is he? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the privileged that have chosen to hear, the multitudes that have gathered, his disciples that are following him, wanting to hear his word. The privileged, and we need to see this is a gift that God has given us. It's a privilege. And look what he says here in verses 9 and 10. The disciples asked him, they come to him privately saying, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you, it has been given. It's a gift to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, mysteries doesn't mean something you can't understand. It means something that was hidden, but has now been revealed. And Jesus said, these things that were hidden, all of these truths, I've come now to reveal them to you. And he says, it's a gift to you people. It's been given to you, not given to everybody. Because look what he goes on to say. But to the rest, the rest, it is given Not a gift in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Instead of looking at it like, man, this word that we've heard is a burden, we need to look at it like it's a gift and it's life. It's the glad tidings. It really is. Well, listen, the right hearing, though, of the word of God is emphasized three times in the passages that we read. Follow me here. Look in verse 8. Look what it says. Jesus, it says... When he had said these things, he initially said the parable. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now listen, we all have ears and we all can hear. I don't know that there's anybody deaf in here. Maybe someone was getting older. You might have a little more difficulty. It's not a matter of not having ears and can't hear. But what he's saying in saying that, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, listen up. That's what he's trying to say. He says he's crying it out. Isn't that what it says? Pay attention. Listen with a believing heart. Seek to truly understand what I'm saying. That's what he's saying. And look in verse 18. He goes on to say this. It says, therefore, he says, take heed how you hear. There's the second exhortation. Take heed how you are here, And why is that important? Because I'm saying, whether we want to fall asleep today or not, or want to hear it or not, and we've heard this all a million times, we've heard the parable of the sower before, I've heard it too. But whether we know it or not, that's an important warning. Take heed how you hear because your spiritual well-being depends on it because look what he goes on to say here in verse 18. Therefore, take heed how you hear. Why for... Whosoever has to him, more will be given. So if you take heat out of your ear in a good way, you'll be given more. Praise God. But whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. So the blessing you had at one time can be taken from you. And here's the sad thing about it is, people don't care. They don't care. They think they found freedom in having it taken from them sometimes. And look in verse 21. Look what it says there. The third exhortation, he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who do what? They hear the word of God and do it. So if you want to be in a final saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, because what he's saying there is the blood relationship part of it didn't matter. The the fact that his mother bore him and these brothers and sisters of his, half brothers and sisters, he said, that doesn't matter. That's not going to put you in a saving, eternal relationship with me. There is only one way that's going to happen is if you hear the word of God and do it. We've heard this many times, but I'll say it again. He said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And too many people think because either a friend of theirs or themselves said, Lord, Lord, at one time, that somehow settles it. And he says, but not everyone that says that to me shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven, isn't that what he's saying there? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. The importance is this parable is put in length in three of the gospels. It's put in length in three of the Gospels. What we need to see is, whether we realize it or not, we all will one day, is that everything about our spiritual life revolves around what our Lord is saying here. Because let me ask you this. We've heard this before a hundred million times too, but just think about it. What is the worst judgment that can fall on you? It's not that you lose your house. It's not that a flood comes through. It's not a hurricane. It's not any of that. You know what the worst judgment is? It's Amos 8. When there's a famine and a famine for the word of God. Because he's taken it away from you. And there's a lot of ways he can do that. So I'm saying everything in our spiritual life revolves around this. Let's look at these conditions of the soils and their responses. The first one we have, this is all familiar, but we're still going through it. And that is the hard ground, verses 11 and 12. He says, now the parable is this, the seed is... The word of God and those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should what believe and be what? Saved. I mean, that's pretty critical, I would say, wouldn't you? You let the word get stolen because of indifference and you may end up not even being saved. Now, the field back then... You know, about this wayside here, they didn't have fences, they had footpaths. And when they'd walk on those footpaths, they said after time, those things could be as hard as concrete. And so when they would broadcast that seed, they're doing it evenly, but they don't have these careful lines they're worrying about. So some of that seed that's broadcast will fall on that hard pavement, so to speak. And it just lays there unprotected. It doesn't penetrate at all. And Jesus says it becomes food for the birds. And that's the hard hearted. Now, just because who he's describing here, he doesn't mean hard-hearted like they're mean. They can be the nicest people in the world, the nicest people you would meet. It could be people in here, people that I like, and they're nice. They're just not interested. That's the problem. They don't see the relevance of this word that they hear preached or read or whatever to their lives. It's just, you know, all a bunch of God talk doesn't work. Just a bunch of hypocrites live in here. Or another thing that will harden your heart that way is when you live in sin. Because when you're living in sin, your conscience will keep you from receiving the word. And you just end up having this indifference and resistance because that's what happened to David. God told him when he confronted him, Nathan told him, he said, you had contempt for my word. That's what he accused him of when you sinned against me because you knew better. He just had this hard indifference towards it. You weren't going to do it. And that's a serious thing. But I think really the big issue in our church can be, and I think is in a lot of ways, is you can have a hardened heart because of familiarity. We've heard it all before. And you hear the different words. So here's what happens. You bring in a different speaker who has a different way of saying basically the same truth and it'll create this interest also well this is the man i'm gonna tell you if he was around long enough you'd feel about him like you do me or whoever else it's just like well, i heard him before i don't like his style of preaching me whatever all da da, because i'm saying here's what happens we've seen how many people move in here and brother hamilton was the hero he was the hero the best preacher they're throwing their bibles up in the air up at the pulpit wanting to talk to him all the time and it generally would take maybe about a year or two And next thing you know, they're criticizing him, criticizing the message, criticizing the church, and they're gone. Some stayed longer, some stayed less time. They quit hearing. I remember one time he went through, maybe it was maybe the third time, the second time he'd gone through the Sermon on the Mount. It was in this building. And I remember, I mean, for me, it was, I just really enjoyed hearing. It wasn't that I was hearing anything new that I hadn't heard before. i heard the Sermon on the Mount from him, from Brother Free. I'd heard it several times taught. But you know what his thing was? He's like, nobody out here is paying attention. That's what he told me. Nobody's listening. Believe me, when you're a preacher, you can tell when people are listening and when they're not. And he was discouraged because he's realizing I'm saying it. And he wasn't saying it the exact same way he said it before. It's not like he put no time and thought into it. He did. And I know he had a care. But we quit listening. And that's the danger, that familiarity and so there's two things that come at work here in this first case with this hardened soil. First, you've got the hardened heart. It's just not that, but you got the devil is actively coming after the word. So he's like a bird. He's like, if you ever been down on the beach? Those seagulls, when they start seeing food out there, man, those guys, they're just kind of walking around, lurching. And I mean, man, bam, they'll dive and fight over it, don't they? And that's what he is. He's waiting, pouncing, stealing. When you don't care about the word, he's going to take it right from you. Matthew 13, it says he snatches the word, which means to grab or seize suddenly to take control and get it away from whoever. That's what he does. Like somebody, when you got a good snack at school and some kid's going to take your snack away from you because he likes your lunch better than his. They used to always bug me. Like eat your own lunch. I like my lunch you know but anyways it's like that kid that's going to grab or snap that's what he does so he knows something he knows that the word he knows better than we do that the word is powerful and given the opportunity let it germinate in a heart it will produce change he knows that if that happens and this person hears this and gets hold of it that they can be saved healed delivered so he works overtime on us people that are here he works overtime on that and think about it when you're reading the bible when you're in here here and preaching it's wandering thoughts roving imaginations sleepy eyes fidgety nerves thinking about work you're distracted and we think it's us we think it's us the you know i'm saying it's spirits at work <laughs> it really is and that's warfare that has to take place you come in here not prayed up you probably aren't going to get anything that doesn't mean you're not in trouble though right Because the word going forth, it blesses this person, this person fell asleep. It's the same word, that's what we have in this parable. So this word's going forth, this word's being broadcast. Does that mean those three that didn't get anything out of it aren't in trouble? They're in trouble. The, The one person got blessed here, but the other three, they're in trouble. That's why he's saying, take heed how you hear. Do you feel that you got a hardened heart against the word of God? Maybe and it bothers you. Let me say only God can change a heart of stone. Only he can do that. He can only is the only one by his spirit change a heart of stone. But I'm saying if you cry out to him, he will. He promises he will. Ezekiel 36, he says, "This I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. He says, I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh. He says he'll do that for you if something's bothering you. To whatever degree, God will change your heart. So moving on here in the stony ground here, look in verse 13. The next, the second here, it says, But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Uh, These have no root, who believe for a while, but in time of temptation they fall away. Now, there's a lot of this kind of ground in Israel where it looks good on the surface, but you say you go about a foot down and it's shale. I got ground like that on my own property where I would seed it in the grass, and I'd think, man, that grass looks beautiful. Next thing you know, it's dead, like little patches. And they're like, the guy's like, well, your problem is there's rock underneath there, shale whatever that's keeping it from sending its root down because as soon as the summer sun comes up, it's gone. And Jesus is saying there are hearts like that. They are shallow. They're the opposite of the hard-hearted because they seem receptive. They're not yawning. They are happy to hear the word. They receive it, it says, with joy, But the problem is it is all emotion, surface level commitment. And there's really no counting the cost. Maybe they're only receiving part of the message with joy and the other part. (laughs) Well, I'll put up with that or deal with that later. Because I've seen this. They had these camps, these young people come back. I've seen this too many times. They're all happy. They supposedly got in tears and they're crying up there up north and supposedly they got saved, and I never see anything happen. They never make a profession of faith to the church, they never get water baptized, and never, I mean, it's just all over, time after time after time after time. I'm not saying nothing happened up there, but nothing happened. It just seems to me like it's a stony ground here. There was no depth to their experience. Well, that happens a lot of times. A young person, they'll feel confused. They'll feel guilty about their sin, and they want help, and they get in the right circumstances, and they can be moved. I've seen that happen. The way you preach gets this emotional response out of people. And it just ends up being temporary. Or you'll see that with alcoholics, drug addicts. People in prison, people in crisis, you know, they want deliverance from the bad choices and the consequences that they've made. That's what they're looking for. And this message may at times seem to give that to them. My marriage is gone. My job is gone. My health is gone. I'll try Jesus. And I have this joy because, well, I no longer have a guilty conscience and heaven's waiting. But here's the thing. They always are coming basically for the excitement, the power, the promises, and it all feels good and looks good. And that was Simon the sorcerer. Oh, I want this power. I want to be able to pray for people to do what you do for them. He'd been baptized. He'd been a believer. He received the message with joy like the rest of them there. And Peter says, nah, you've got a wicked heart for the reason you're wanting to be involved in all of this. And you better pray God gives you repentance if perhaps he will. And John 8, Jesus told the crowd, they're all following him because he's giving them bread. He's doing all this. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples because I got some hard things to tell you all and what happens when that came around and it's not bread but it's the truth they have to walk it. many it said if not all of them turn away to where he's down to the 12 are you guys going away also and Peter at least saw and spoke for the rest of them except for Judas that we see you have the words of eternal life we can't find that anywhere else we can get bread but you have the words we're not going anywhere And Jesus is like, well, you're blessed that you can see that because not all can see it that way. People, I would say in this second account, they have never had a personal face to face encounter with the risen Lord to see themselves as the wicked sinners. They are in need of this great physician to see that only he can cure me and I can never leave him because I need to cure for the rest of my life. Those are the only ones that stay there. They see the price he paid for them on the cross. To give them that cure. And they just can't walk away from that. But they've committed themselves. They've looked him in the eye and said, I commit myself to you as my Lord and Savior. Like a husband and wife should do. I've had people more in prison where they want me to pray with them to be saved. And I'll say, I'll be here. But you pray because you're committing yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. I'm not committing you to him. (laughs) And they'll do it a lot of times. I want them to see that it's a relationship you're starting with him now that needs to be maintained, that you can't walk away from that easily, I don't think. A lot of times when somebody comes and it's that joy because they got their consciences and all that, when the first sign, it's not fun and games, they're gone and they're offended. You know, Greg and I, we had a good friend. He was a real good friend to both of us, really, and he heard we'd gotten saved or had gotten out about Greg and I and our community. And I talked to him and he said, you know, I've thought a lot of times about you guys and I've thought about I need to get right with God. And I shared the gospel with him. And he's all excited. Me and Greg went out and talked to him and talked to him about getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's all excited about being a Christian and all that came to church. Well, you know, then his mom, he tells his mom about us and she hears some of the tapes. This is not this church. This is up in Columbus. And she tells him, oh, that place is a cult. And then he's got this girlfriend that. She tells him, basically, you go that route, and me and you, it's all over. Well, that's all it took. And next thing you know, he don't want anything to do with us. I don't hear other reports of things he's saying, but that's all it took. was that? What happened? Who was he committing himself to? I mean, it was just the word. It's not like he even went to another church somewhere else. As far as I know, he stayed a Catholic. So what we need to see is how deep is our commitment to God's word? Do we really spend time seeking God? Do you really? study in the scriptures to understand his ways. Get these questions you have answered. Find them in the Bible. His methods, his life, his power. We have to be grounded in truth because emotional faith, people like it. They like to hear that kind, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but emotional faith is not gonna stand up to the heat of the sun. Grounded people, a person that is grounded are thinkers. They are stable people not superficial. And Paul says in Colossians 2 to those Christians there in Colossae, he says you should be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. That's what Paul says to the Christians there in Colossae. That's good advice, I think. Should be rooted and built up in union with him and established in the faith as you have been taught. moving on here to the third ground the thorny ground in verse 14 it says "There now the ones that fell among thorns are those who when they have heard go out and are choked with cares riches and pleasures of life and it says they bring no fruit to maturity really i think most people are here so i think really if someone's a member of this church for whatever reason you at one point i would say all of us in here have decided we would be committed get deeply rooted and want to be a maturing christian but for these people that he's talking about here and god forbid it should be any of us but something happened along the way this type here it's not something that just happens overnight this falling away it happens gradually slowly over time and it's not an immediate condition because there's even a sign of fruit isn't there it just says it doesn't come to maturity but there is a sign of fruit Look what it says there. He says, bring no fruit to maturity. It doesn't say there's like no fruit at all. It just doesn't come to maturity and it's choked. And he gives three main causes that the word is choked in an otherwise good heart. The three causes are cares, riches, and pleasures. The weeds that I would say are common to all of humanity. It's something everybody's dealing with. Those cares or another word would be worries, the worries of life. You're worried about having enough, worried about this worried about how you look, worried about politics, worried about your kids. Our English word, this is interesting, our English word for worry comes from a German word "worgen" and that word literally means to choke or strangle. This is the way it is. Look it up if you got an Oxford English dictionary. That's the root of it. And that's what worry will do to faith, it'll strangle it. And that is despite the fact that Jesus told us clearly in Matthew 6 not to worry about anything he says take no thought the birds eat every day the flowers are dressed better than Solomon and he says they never worry I take care of them and he's telling us through that just relax I've got you covered I'll take care of whatever it is you need and he says fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and it says this in Philippians be anxious or worry for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, I started to say, let's commit ourselves for the next few days. Why don't we just commit ourselves, period, that the next time we're tempted to worry about something that's really troubling us, that we're going to pray and leave it in God's hands and obey what He says? It's a clear command that He tells us to do take no thought. And the other is this wealth and pleasures, the seduction that comes from wealth because wealth brings in divided loyalties. Jesus said no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. So loving money and the pursuit of pleasures, he's saying, will choke the word. It will strangle its power in your life life. That's what it's saying. Elvis Presley, I'm not going to do an imitation, died in 1977 of a drug overdose. He loved motorcycles, Cadillacs. He had two private jet planes. I forget the name of those things. He'd fly around the country. He's got everything you could imagine. He'd fly around the country get his pilot to get in his plane fly around the country fly him out to denver in the middle of the night because denver sold this i guess he was a peanut butter and bananas the guy liked i don't know but denver had this only place you could get this certain peanut butter he wanted could you imagine three in the morning get up we're going to denver so i can get some peanut butter right well, that's what he did well anyways he had this stepbrother named rick and he said at one time that he believed elvis truly had a heart For the Lord Jesus. And I don't know how many of you knew this, but his favorite music was not rock and roll, it was actually Southern gospel music. And he would use Southern gospel singers to be background vocals in his recordings, and they would tour with him. The Imperials, the Jordanaires, J.D. Sumner, and the Stamps. J.D. Sumner supposedly hit the lowest bass note of any human being ever living. J.D. Sumner, the people that have ever followed Southern gospel music would know about him and them and all that. Well, they toured with him on tour, on stage with Elvis Presley, these gospel singers from 1971 up until the day of his death in 1977. Well, listen, Elvis did not die a good death. His brother-in-law, this was a Christian who's spoken at many churches, said that Elvis had a heart for the Lord, but then he let fame and money choke the word in his life. And Jesus just became one of many interests. Not his only interest. And I think he knew better, but he didn't know better in the end, did he? It's just a sad way to end. The one thing that's needful, whether we realize it or not, is sitting right under your nose. Because we could be busy about a lot of things. Cell phone, yard work, business, housework, projects, on and on and on. But there he sits. There sits, because the Lord is the Word, can many times sit in our home neglected. And your relationship with Him because of all these other things is choked and strangled, and His power is not in all of our lives like it should be. All of us. If you would, please just turn over to Luke 10. It's another familiar passage, but we'll read it nonetheless. Luke 10 verses 38 to 42, and it says here, and now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and did what? Heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, 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 you're worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part. And look what it says at the end, which will not be taken away from her. We don't want that to happen, do we? So we've got to get our priority straight, is what he's telling us there. One thing is needful and one only. And he'll take care of all the rest of it. That's what he says. All right, so back to Luke 8, and we'll finish with the good ground. Verse 15, it says, But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And we got to make it our business to have this heart. That's the only difference of the four that heard the word is their heart. And it says here that this is an honest and good heart. That word honest means somebody with integrity, someone you can trust Someone that God can give his word to and know they are not going to waste it or misuse it. That's the people that are hearing this word and they're bearing fruit. The good part of it, honest and good, I think it's talking about morally good. A person that has a heart that wants to do what is right. They want to please God. They want to do what's right no matter the cost. Joseph was that way, wasn't he? He was going to hold on to the Lord and his word. It didn't matter what he cost him. It's the same we talked about Daniel. It's the same with Daniel and those three Hebrew boys. They had that word. They're in a strange country. They're in an environment that's hostile to them. And they're saying, we're not letting this word go. Put us wherever you want, Lord. This means that much to us. And people with hearts like that, they're going to treasure the word. And they're going to bring forth fruit. And they're going to hear in the end, not Martha. Martha. But Mary, you have well done, thou good and faithful servant. And they're not gonna be like, I don't care about this, it's not that important. Holidays, all these other things we've heard about, it's just really not that important. They're gonna consider it a privilege to be entrusted by God, an honest and good heart, a privilege to be entrusted by God with the word, and it will humble them. In James 1, it says this, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, James says this in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's what we're reading here about this last example. And the best example we have of receiving the word in humility is Mary in Luke one. The angel appears, behold, that cousin Elizabeth, she's also conceived a son in her old age. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Or that means with him, no word is void of power. And Mary said this, this was her response. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. So she was a righteous woman and meekly received the word That was given to her. She was good soil. She had an honest and upright and good heart towards the Lord. So in conclusion, and this is a short conclusion. What we've been saying today is we all have a grave responsibility to have a prepared heart. Anytime we hear the word of God, whether we're hearing it read, whether we're reading it ourselves, hearing it from a brother or sister or hearing it preached. So 2 Chronicles 12, 14, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He wasn't spoken well of by the Lord in his word at the end. At the end of his life, it says this about him in the Bible. It says he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. So God would have blessed him, but he didn't prepare his heart, didn't think it was necessary. And Moses wrote this to Israel. He says in Deuteronomy 4, 9, only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things which thy eyes have seen and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life you got to be careful he's saying only take heed to yourself keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things which the eyes have seen unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. That's the message of verse 18. If you would please just look down there again, Jesus says, therefore, take heed how you hear for whoever has to him more will be given. But whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken away from you. I've seen many saints and so a lot of you that have walked with the lord seen answers to prayer trusted him in hard times lived holy lives only to let the world creep in and they forget not just a little but it seems like everything it doesn't mean they're not religious but their trust in god leaves and you don't just lose it in one part when you turn away from the lord like that. it affects their whole life and people that i know have set under the word like this they got me into the word like this all of a sudden they get away from it they drift away and they were examples to me their testimonies encouraging me they drift away and then you talk to them and they're saying and doing things that literally shock you literally like it's been erased from their minds and they think it's okay that's the scary part of it they think what they're doing now is freedom and you're somehow still in bondage i'm like really Because the Bible hasn't changed For whoever has to him shall be given And he shall have more But whoever has not from him shall be taken Even that which he has And so that brings us back to Revelation And he told the church there Remember therefore how thou hast received And heard and hold fast And repent 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 how? Well the NET translation of Jeremiah 4-3 And I'm going to end with this verse Goes like this It says, the Lord has this to say, says this to Israel, but he's saying it to us like a farmer breaking up hard, unplowed ground. You must break your rebellious will and make a new beginning, just as a farmer must clear away thorns, lest the seed is wasted. You must get rid of the sin that is ruining your lives. That's that famous verse, break up the fallow ground. That's what we need to do to repent. The things that are keeping you from receiving and acting on the word, we need to get them out of our lives. All of us have something, amen, that we can work on. So how we hear the word is going to determine our eternal state. It is that critical. It is that critical. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, once again. That in your graciousness, Lord, you've given us a warning in your word and that you've given us your word. And I pray, Father, that everyone within the sound of my voice would have an honest and a good heart before you. That the word that you've given us and will continue to give us, Lord, that we'll receive that and we'll walk in it because of our relationship with you. That we want to, Lord, be pleasing in your sight, that we want to experience you, the living God. And that not only your presence, but your power will be evident in our lives. And we can share that with others. Say not to put a basket over your candle or your light, but to let it shine and to be willing to share it. Lord, I ask you'll give us all hearts like that. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.